You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. morning, Redemption. Uh, Will you pray with me? Jesus, will you open our ears to hear you? Will you open up our eyes to see you? Open up our inner souls, our inner selves, to the awareness of your presence. And transform us by your love, making our hands instruments of your goodness, your justice, and your mercy in the world. Will you speak this morning through me, through our singing, through our reading, through our work together here as your people? It's in your name we pray, amen. Uh, So this morning, I want to preach to the choir a little bit. Because this morning I'm going to talk about why we go to church. And you're all here, and maybe you're like, I don't know, why am I here? And this is like your last Sunday. This is the sermon for you. Um, In all seriousness, maybe you are someone who's kicking the tires on this Jesus thing. Uh, Or maybe not even Jesus, you're just kicking the tires on spirituality in general, and you're looking at religions, and you saw a local church, Googled us, and you showed up. Uh, maybe you've been here for a really long time. Maybe you grew up in the church. But on a foggy, misty, gray Super Bowl Sunday, um, there are a lot of other things you could have been doing this, this morning. A lot of other ways that you could have been spending your time that would have been good uses of your time, beautiful uses of your time. So... It will likely come as no surprise to many of you, um, but attendance at churches across the nation is significantly down. In fact, attendance at religious services in general, uh, of all sorts, is significantly down. Um, I'm going to throw some stats at you, because you know, if you know me at all, you know that stats are my thing. No, not at all. In an article in The New Yorker, which I almost never read, uh, Khalifa Sana points out that in 1999, Gallup found that 70% of Americans belonged to a church. 70% in 1999. Or sorry, church, synagogue, or mosque. I should finish the sentence, yeah. Um, In 2020, the number was 47%. Which, maybe that doesn't seem significant, but 
for the previous, from like the 70s until the 90s, that number changed like 3%. So we had this very minuscule change over 30 years, and then all of a sudden in the span of a couple of decades, a drastic drop. Uh, The former pastor and statistics researcher, Ryan Berger, points out that for the first time in the history of our country, there are more non-religious people in the United States than ever before. Right, so in other words, for the first time ever in the United States of America, there are more people than not who will raise their hand and say, "Ah, I'm not really religiously affiliated with anything. And that includes, right, that would include atheists or agnostics, right? So if you claim, I am an atheist, you are affiliating yourself with that. I am an agnostic. I'm staking the claim of agnosticism. That doesn't count. These are people that are saying, no, no, I'm not an atheist. I'm not an agnostic. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not Jewish. I am just nothing. And they check the box that says none. And it's a thing that if you're in church world, you are familiar with. They're called the nuns. Yeah, it's pretty punny. And we want to blame this on Gen Z, quirky Gen Z in their 90s gear, and, right? But actually, um, this is not a Gen Z problem. While it's true that Gen Z, like every generation before them, is less religious than their predecessor, um, this is across the board. More boomers now than in 1999 are more likely to select none. More millennials now than in 1999 are more likely to select none. While younger folks are, of course, uh, more likely to be less religious than previous generations, this is not a generational problem. Ryan Berg goes on to observe this phenomenon uh, is one that defies demographics. He says that if you name a niche demographic in the United States, there is a very, very good chance that they are less religious today than that same demographic group 15 years ago. This is also not a partisan phenomenon. So you might be going, ah, those woke liberals. If you're at this church, you're probably not saying that, but. Um, And while it's true that at least in the church, I I can't speak to other religions, in the church there is a move of progressive Christianity, uh, sorry, progressive Christianity towards something like Unitarianism, right? This idea of like, uh, we begin to open up our eyes to the reality that God is re- actually like in and around and in everything, and we give up the distinctive Christian notion and story of Jesus. And so we see this in some famous artists and pastors and thought leaders that have deconverted away from the historic Christian faith and have begun pursuing other avenues of spirituality, turning towards meditation, psychedelics, and other forms of non-conventional spiritual practices. Right? So we can talk about the liberals and progressive Christians all day long. However, a shocking research study just came out that points, that points to conservative Christianity is actually even worse. That for conservative Christians that tend towards Christian nationalism, they are more likely than less to participate at any level in a local church and yet they claim to be Christian, and they claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. A decline in church attendance has led to a radicalization and a militant religion 
under the banner of the cross. This study comes out and concludes this. Decline in church attendance have made the rural Republican regions of the country even more Republican and perhaps most surprising, more stridently Christian nationalist. In other words, what the research suggests is that moving away from the church did not loosen up their political ideology. It did not make them less conservative. Moving away from the church made them more conservative. Rather than challenging their political ideals, they were further entrenched because they did not have a story that was speaking against those ideals. And so we see this on both sides. The reality is that uh, in America today, those who are moving away from religious institutions are finding themselves more lonely and more likely to to get sucked into radicalization and one form or another, as it provides a sense of belonging, a sense of us versus them, a sense of meaning in life. And for the first time in nearly 100 years in the United States, worshipers of all religions are less than non-worshippers. Welcome to church. Glad you're here. You're like, I don't know, maybe am I missing something? Should I get out? What do they know that I don't know? So our temptation might be to go, wow, man, we really live in a secular society. I can't believe it. But this is not an atheistic problem. It's not that people have stopped believing in something bigger or spiritual. It's the problem that spirituality has been disconnected from formal definitions that were provided by religious institutions. To say it another way, spirituality has been uh, separated from religion. Right, and we've heard the phrase, I'm not really religious, I'm spiritual, because religion became this like really terrible thing. And yet, the book of Ephesians challenges us on this notion. Right, and, and I want to speak to the reality that we all are coming from very different places. Um, so I had a, two, two stories I'll share. Um, one, I... We had a, a family funeral this week, and so my sister was in town. I love my sister. She's fantastic. Um, she experienced some pretty significant church hurt in the church that she spent almost a decade in with her husband. It was a, a domineering church that had convinced her that if you want to follow Jesus, it looks like this, and it did not lead to her flourishing, but led to a lot of like running around and serving the church, the, that particular local institution, and not really like benefiting her spiritual flourishing. Fast forward, her and her husband are now very tentatively getting involved in another church, and she was sharing with me, like, yeah, they text me, and they're like, hey, there's this Bible study, and of course, it was something, you know, it was like some sort of verb. It was like, you've got to come to Rush. We're starting Rush this week, you know, whatever it is that they do. <laughs> and then she's like, I don't know this person, and they're telling me, you've got to come to Rush, and it'll be great. And then they ended with this. You should come. Can you believe that? And I was like kind of chuckling because I'm like, I don't really see that. That's not that big of a deal, is it? But when you've experienced what she's experienced, what she heard from them was not, hey, you should come, but was a guilt-inducing like, hey, you really better come to this. Right? So I want to acknowledge there are those of us in the room that like my sister, she she said this to me because I was asking her like, so what is your, like, what's your relationship with the church? She's like, look, we like it there. Uh, it's good for us. I, we're just really hesitant to get too close. And so I, I just want to keep the church at a distance. 
respect. I get that. I understand why, and I don't know the church, so I'm really hesitant to be like, no, throw yourself in, it'll be fine, right? <laughs> Another story, um, all of this happened this week, which I'm like, okay, cool, this works. I have a coffee mug somewhere that someone gave me that says, be careful what you say around me because it might become a sermon illustration. And I'm like, that's really mean. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I deserve this. This, I've earned this mug. It's from my mom. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe she's trying to tell me something. Stop using me in your sermons. Anyways, uh, so another friend of mine recently read a book on near-death experiences and had themselves had some sort of like mystical encounter in that moment. And they're like freaking out because this is not a, you know, this is not someone who goes around having mystical encounters. This is a very grounded, like blue collar person um, who grew up in the Catholic church and is now like reading this book and somehow encountering something that they can't explain and have never experienced before. And so they were talking to to a friend of theirs. They're like, yeah, I just have this overwhelming feeling that I really need to go to church. And the friend responded, wait, why? What are, you, what are you going to get there that you didn't get out of this book? Like, oh, no, you don't need to go to church. I want us to be really, really careful, right? I don't want any of this to be uh, some sort of guilt-inducing, we're going to take attendance and you'd better be at church, blah, 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 blah. That is not who we are. That's not who we'll ever be. But I also don't ever want us to be a people that give up the gathering, that give up the the something that's happening when we get together that we can't find anywhere else, if any of this is actually really true. And so Ephesians challenges this notion. Ephesians is what many describe as a very high church book. In fact, like really, really liberal scholars are going to say, no, no, this wasn't written by Paul. This was written by later church to like point out, no, no, we got to figure out a way to make people come to church. Um, And so, yeah, that's what I'm going to preach this morning. Verse 16, I'm going to skip the first couple of verses. We'll come back to them in a second. But I want us to look. This is Paul praying for this group of Ephesians who he's not met. And he's really going to pray something that is circling back to what we spent the last two weeks in. He's he's going to be praying for something that happened in verses 3 through 14. He's going to use a lot of that language and bring that language back. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, And so what is he going to ask God for for them when he prays? He's praying, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, if you've ever read this passage before, it's really wordy, really flowery. You're like, what in the world does any of this mean? There was a, a former New Testament theologian who summarized this whole section that we're talking about today really simply and, and quite perfectly when he said this, all Paul is praying for here is that may you grasp what the Spirit of God desires for you. May you grasp what God wants for you. That's what is being said here. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So I want to unpack this for just a second. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. We could spend literally weeks on just these two verses. Um, We're not going to do that. So if you have questions about this, if you're like, man, I really wanted to know about this thing or that thing, find us on Instagram. We'll put up a post. What questions do you have? You can respond to that, and we will answer your questions. So Paul says he's going to give them three things. 
He's going to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's going to ask that the eyes of their heart be enlightened, and he's going to ask that they would know the hope. And this idea of the spirit of wisdom is is a tie to the Holy Spirit, who he just said at the end of the previous section that God was giving them as an inheritance. So I'm, I'm asking that God would give you the spirit, which God has already promised to give you, and that this spirit of wisdom and revelation would lead you to the knowledge of him. Now, if you grew up a good Southern Baptist like I did, what you hear is that would lead you to a great, robust knowledge of the Bible, that you would be Bible answer man or woman, but it's Southern Baptist Church, so let's be real. Okay, sorry, too soon, too soon. Okay, all right. So we hear knowledge as like Western thinkers, and we think data, we think information, we think, I, I need to know more. But this, this language of knowledge is not about what you know, it is a personal relational word, that the knowledge of him is the type of knowledge that uh, uh, Genesis talks about when it talks about, and wife, or Adam knew his wife Eve. It wasn't that she had brown eyes, okay? Um, something PG 13's going on there, kids. It is, a, it is an intimate, relational, personal um, knowledge that Paul is asking the Spirit to lead us into. That we would know, that we would encounter, that we would experience the God of love. This is the goal. This is the prayer. This is what it means to have knowledge. And that as we experience God, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. Which is a really fancy, flowery way to say we become more of who God has created us to be. We become aware of what God is up to in our own hearts and lives, and we become aware of what God is up to in the world when it really is hard to see it sometimes. One of the things that I really hope for anyone who steps into our place is two things. One, that God would miraculously and graciously fill them with hope. But two, that God would miraculously and graciously give them a space to rest. That they would, they would come into this place, hopefully week after week, and you would somehow like, I don't know, that guy's yammering up there, but I just feel like peace here. There's something here that just gives me something that I need. I pray that God would do that among us. Because that's what knowing and experiencing God does. This is what it means. The eyes of our heart would be enlightened. And then he concludes, so that you would know the hope. Now, what's interesting here is he's going to do this later in the the letter, but he attaches hope not to some sort of principle or ideal. He attaches hope to the person of Jesus. So what he's saying here when he teases so that you know the hope is so that you would know the hope, yes, the hope that you have in this person, Jesus, yes, who is seated at the right hand of the Father and has promised to return in glory one day. So this is not general knowledge, but intimate, personal relationship with the Godhead. The God of love who through the person of Jesus is enfolding us into that love. And it's a prayer that's asking us to be able to see and become aware of something that we couldn't see before. To be aware of something that we weren't aware of before. 
And the purpose is not information, not to be a Bible scholar, not to be smarter than everyone else. The goal is love. That we would be wrapped up in the knowledge of God. And that we would come to know the riches of his glorious inheritance, which is the promise and the assurance that God has said, you are sons and daughters, and I will come back and get you. I've not left you here. I've not abandoned you here. And that you will experience the power that is work at work within you. And this is an allusion to the resurrection. Um, he goes on. So I forgot to print this in my notes. So I have my Bible opened up on my phone. Lord, I apologize. Um, verse 19. What is the boundless greatness of his power towards us who believe? That we would know and experience the boundless greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Right, so, so what Paul is saying here is that may God allow you to know and understand that the power of God that was at work in the Messiah is the same exact power of God that is at work in you. And that same power rose Jesus from the dead. How might you begin to go through life differently if you really could actually like believe that? That the power of God that raised the dead is currently working in you and has assured you that one day, no matter how decayed you are, maybe you were cremated, maybe you were buried at sea, doesn't matter because the power of God that is at work within you will, in fact, raise you from the dead. It's liberating, it's freeing, and it frees us up to love. We don't have to put up walls. We don't have to worry about people taking advantage of us because it doesn't matter anymore. I don't need to, like, preserve myself. I can freely give myself because the power of God that raises the dead is at work in me. Okay, let me make this like tangible to us. Um, the language that Paul's using here is a callback to the previous passage that we've looked at during the last two weeks. Right, this foundational story of what God is up to in the world, what God has for each one of us as his people Right? This is God's story that is breaking into our story, that's reimagining our story, that's redeeming our story. And so what Paul's prayer is, is that these people would hear this story, would know this story, become aware of this story, begin to see this story at work in the world around them and in their own lives, that this story would begin to replace whatever other story they have been living into before this allowing them to let this story fold them into the love of God and then allow them to embody this story out in the world. All right. So I want to circle back to 
the beginning of this passage. Verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, right? So um, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which, which exists among you. When, when we hear that, if we've grown up in certain circles of the Christian faith, what we hear is that you have intellectually agreed to a certain set of, I don't know, ideas, Right? Did uh, Jesus come and die? Yeah, I believe that that historically happened. And, and we describe that as faith. What, what's packed into that word, like, yes, of course, that's, that's part of what it believes. But what's also packed into that word is faithfulness. And so the idea here is, and it's uh, tricky to kind of use the word faith and really get to what it's trying to describe here because we have kind of colored this language of faith so much. Well, maybe this is me coming from my Southern Baptist heritage where we have, you know, revivals and all the sort, sort of things where like my goal is like, I just need to get you to believe. There's someone in this room who's going to believe. We're going to sit here until you believe and you come down and accept Jesus. But r- rather than faith or faithfulness, perhaps some better ways to, to translate this word would be allegiance. I've heard of your allegiance in Christ. Or fidelity is one that I really like. I've heard of your fidelity in Christ. It's like, yes, of course, it absolutely has the idea that like, yeah, yeah, you've heard this and you've believed it, sure. But then beyond that, you've like really actually believed it to the point that you've made it your own. You've started embodying it. You've started living into it. You believe that Jesus is the king of the world, and now you're acting as if Jesus is actually really the king of the world. Imagine that. It's the difference of believing that George Washington was the first president of the United States versus believing in George Washington as the president of the United States. Like you're willing to actually go and fight and do things, right? Uh, That's the thing. Anyways. Okay, so what in the world does this have to do with anything? This is the idea, right? So Paul's pointing to, and we're going to hit this pretty hard over the next few weeks as we enter into chapter two. But Paul is getting at this idea that when we hear the story Over and over and over and over again, we begin to embody it. And as we begin to embody it, we become certain types of people. We become a certain type of community, a type of community that begins to look and act and sound like Jesus. Watch what he says, verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Uh, And and in English, it's pretty clear, like, oh, these are two separate things. But in Greek, it's really obscure. It's like, I don't know, is it faith and love connected? Right, the idea here being that faithfulness, allegiance, fidelity, faith, leads us to be people of love. But notice what he says. Where is that love exhibited that he's heard about? It's among God's people. Right, and this is not Paul saying, hey, don't love those who aren't God's people. Don't love those people who are outside of the church. Of course not. 
But there is a unique type of love that is embodied in the people of God because of their allegiance to Jesus. There is a unique sort of community that we become because of our faith in Jesus. Now, if that's true, then here's the difference. One variation is this. Hey, you've agreed to this intellectual idea that Jesus has come and died for your sins and that when you die, you get to go to heaven. Check that box. So now going to church is, I don't know, maybe I will, maybe I won't because like I can show up and maybe learn some interesting things about Jesus and it's just like, oh yeah, I will get to go to heaven one day. Cool. Anyways, back to work versus the other which is this idea that Jesus is calling us to be that which will ultimately exist in the kingdom of God one day. That we are to be this colony of death, or sorry, this sorry, wrong one, <laughs> colony of life in this land of death. That we're to actually really love one another. And, and, and to be the sort of community that no matter who walks through that door, we, as a community, feel responsible for that person. I don't, I don't know you, person who just walked in the door, and this is going to be weird, but like, can we be friends? I don't know, you're about four decades older than me, doesn't matter. Can we hang out? Can we grab coffee? I don't know why you're here, but glad you're here. I don't want to be too cynical here, but I'm going to be cynical here. I think we've heard this in a way that has led to our showing up to church as consumers. I've believed in Jesus and I go to church because, I don't know, maybe I'll get something out of it for me. And what Ephesians is going to make very, very clearly is that you have been chosen to go out and to do for the good of the world. And that happens first and foremost here in our gathering. This is the most clearly that anyone out there is ever going to see what Jesus has to offer them. Not because I stand up with a microphone and say something, because they will feel it among us. Is the mule dead? Because I've beat it quite a bit. Is this, or the horse, I don't know, whatever the saying is. Some of you are now horrified. I am not saying that we should do violence to animals. Okay. So I want to attach this to our opening. I think part of the rise of the nuns is rightly attributed to a distrust in institutions. That over the the course of the last several decades, um, I don't know, I've heard some like major institutions have let people down. I don't know. Have you all experienced this anywhere? I haven't really. I don't know. Right? You have the bank crisis. I'm just going to think about my own personal ones. Like you have the bank crisis in 2008. Um, I was a part of a church where I found out that the pastor who mentored me and discipled me had been embezzling millions of dollars over the course of several years. Um, I've had conversations with people that have experienced way worse than that. You have the sex abuse scandal that was happening in the Catholic church, but us Baptists were free and clear. Oh, wait, no, we weren't. And then the response to that has been to cover up and to protect the institution and blah, 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 right, you know. And so, like, I get it. Like, this is not me saying, no, no, you should trust the institution. Um, I get why people have given up on church. I get why there is a very large distrust in institutions. We don't trust the media. 
or at least certain medias. We don't trust the state. Um, TikTok gets it right, right? I mean, that algorithm is spot on. I only get truth from TikTok, okay? We don't trust politicians. Why would we? <laughs> um, we don't trust schools. We don't trust marketing. Everything is bent on destroying me. And so where do we turn? We turn inward. We find people who are like us, who think like us, agree with us, look like us, and then we hunker down and we shoot our missiles against the other. And we become a people that the only thing left to trust in is ourselves. We become the arbiters of truth and we exist in a crisis of authority. Um, I may or may not watch a lot of reality TV, okay? And I, like, I, I genuinely, part of this is a little judgy, but I don't mean it judgy, but like the, the way to end an argument in reality TV is, well, that's just my truth, right? No matter what you're saying, it can be the most offensive, whatever it is, well, that's just my truth. It's like, that's the, the, that's the ace of spades. Like, I don't, know what, I don't know what to tell you if that's my truth, right? We're left trying to figure out what a good life is on our own. We're left to figure out what to do with our pain on our own. We're left to define what a meaningful life is on our own. And we should not be surprised that we are dealing with a mental health crisis. We should not be surprised that we're dealing with a a crisis of loneliness and isolation to the point now that that secular, non-religious people are saying, no, 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 look, we've lost something with these, like, losing these religious institutions. We need to go back to the religious institutions, if anything, for, like, the friendship. Who cares if you believe or not? Like, just go to make a friend. Research summarized in the sociological forum, but something I read often, Reflecting on the rise of Christian nationalism in particular uh, around 2016, right? So this is right before the election. Seeing this trend is now like trying to explain it a little bit. And they concluded this. At a time when fewer Americans attended religious services, religious narratives, right? The story. Religious narratives about Christian nationhood may have their strongest political effects when and perhaps because they've been detached from religious institutions. In other words, I can get on 4chan and I can find whatever various variation of Christianity that I want to find and I can find my quote-unquote Christian community and together we can storm the Capitol and do all the things. And we can call it Christian. And I can go to heaven when I die because I still believe in Jesus. I think there's something that we need. I think there's something that Paul is saying uh, we need in our gathering, in our togetherness. One of the conclusions I want to draw about this, uh, with this, is this means that while faith might be personal, please understand that faith is not individualistic. And I understand our, our bent towards this. We have maybe experienced in our lives or have experienced in the history of religion dead institutions where we're just born into them and there's no real authentic personal faith. So, so like your personal engagement matters. I think it matters to God. I think it matters to you. However, 
all you ever have is you and your prayer life, I think you're missing something that God has for you. Like, I think we need each other. So while it's personal, it's not individualistic. Faith in Christ is tied to the community of Christ. Um, what's interesting about this prayer that Paul prays here is the you. Hey, I pray that your eyes would be enlightened. It's y'all. It's not you. It's y'all. I pray that y'all's eyes would be enlightened together with one another. I pray that y'all would experience the spirit of wisdom and revelation together. I've heard of y'all's faith and y'all's love. Together, this is communal language. I'm skipping over some stuff here. Filtering, filtering. Um, If the work of Jesus, right, talking about our individual faith versus communal faith, if the work of Jesus is something that only concerns our final destination, which that is, that is what I grew up with. That is how I came to know Jesus. So please hear me. When I say that, I'm not saying that that doesn't count and you need to believe something completely different. That is how I entered into knowing Jesus. But if that is the summation of it, if that is all that it is, is, hey, believe this so that when you die, then all that we do on a Sunday is really just window dressing. And I'd much rather go out, well, not today. A park would be terrible today, but I'd go stay in bed or go do something different. Go to brunch. But if the story of God, if the work of the church is God's liberating work and God's people are now those who are liberated, tasked with reflecting that liberation and their liberator back to the world, then his story of liberation becomes our story, and this becomes central to who we are and what we're doing every single Sunday. Okay, last verse. Here's what I mean. Verse 22. And God the Father put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and made Jesus head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Uh, Let me put this simply. The church is the body of Jesus. Right, so we hear that in like uh, Bible study e-ways. The metaphor is this, if I want to encounter Jesus, I encounter his people. This is what Paul is saying. You are Jesus's presence upon the earth, church. And, and this word church that he uses here is not institutional language. It's literally the word ecclesia, which if you've done any sort of like Greek stuff on this, it literally just means the gathering. So it's not you sitting at your cubicle by yourself. You're not the presence of Jesus. We together, specifically in our gathering, are the presence of Jesus. As we observe confession together, as we sing and worship together, as we hear from God's word together, as we participate in the sacraments together, we somehow manifest the presence of Jesus Christ in the earth. 
And we begin to embody this story that we hear week after week. And it begins to transform us so that when we're out sitting at our cubicle, we're doing so in a very different way than we were before because we've been changed. And we've been changed by the Jesus that shows up here among us. So the expression of love is this Christ's presence in the earth is found in our gathering. It's not just us hanging out. You and a bunch of Christians, you go out and play pickleball, that ain't it. That's not what Paul's describing here. Please, absolutely go and play pickleball together. There is something really rich and spiritual about that, and all the Gen Z folks are like, dude, come on, man, pickleball's great. But it's in our worship. It's in our Sunday after Sunday. It's in our praying together in our hub groups. It's in our confessing together in our hub groups. It's in our doing the spiritual stuff, or what we would call the spiritual stuff. And we embody the story of Jesus together. In a couple of days, we're going to do Ash Wednesday service, two of them. One really early in the morning um, and one in the afternoon. So if you've got to get to work, we've got one in the morning for you. Come before work. And if you can get here on your lunch break, you can come to that one instead if you need to. But part of why we do that is to enter into rhythms that remind us of the story. It's not just like, oh, it's this cool thing that we'll do, and we'll feel some sort of way about it, and then we'll go about our day. We are trying to embody the reality that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has been risen, and Christ will return again. We need to hear this story, and our neighbors need to hear this story. A couple of quotes here, and then I'll wrap this up. In the article, What Really Happens When Americans Stop Going to Church, Daniel K. Williams says, there's little to stop them from refashioning the Christian story into their own image with potentially heretical results. And in contrast to the days when both Republicans and Democrats and Northerners and Southerners shared a common religious language despite their differences, little common ground is now left between the post-Christians of the urban North and the post-church Christian nationalists of the rural South. The decline of church-going in America, it seems, has not eviscerated Christianity, it has perverted it. We're going to see here in the next chapter of Ephesians that one of the marks of the church is diversity. It was not long ago that you could go to a church and you could throw a rock and hit a Republican or a Democrat. Who knew? It didn't matter. A detached spirituality from the gathering of the people of God in worship is destined to devolve into something far less redemptive. We need this story. Our neighbors need this story. It veers us away from Jesus' story and pioneers another narrative that entirely serves our own kingdoms. Last quote. This is from uh, Khalifa Sena's article, which I started off with in the New Yorker. The January 6th protester who prayed in the Senate, right? So this is to illustrate this idea. For instance, his name was Jake Angeli. He's known as the QAnon shaman. You've seen pictures of him. He wore the hat with the horns, no shirt. And he had previously referred to himself as part of a light occultic force. 
Right, so not many Christians are going around calling themselves a light occultic force. And yet, he entered the capital chamber and then prayed. And during his prayer, Angeli thanked God for the divine, omnipresent, white light of love and protection, peace and harmony. This language of light workers and of other contemporary spiritualists. Perhaps a shaman is the perfect figurehead for a movement defined by Christian heritage and not Christian faith. America may now be following the trajectory of Europe where Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, talks about the importance of Christian roots, even though fewer than 20% of Hungarians attend church regularly. Our gathering matters. Our gathering bears witness to a God who has acted on our behalf, who is here among us and working for us, who is with us, and who is ushering in an age to come, even now among us. Our gathering is a protest against hate, hopelessness, unforgiveness. It's a subversive act of embodying and reimagining a community where Jesus is actually and really all in all. Where we are all, each and every one of us, sons and daughters, and where injustice and inequality melt into the awe and love of the Godhead. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.